Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we get to study your Word, spend time with you, worship you, give you honor. And I thank you for the opportunity to break the bread of the word with your people and with anybody who's watching right now, uh, Father. And we just, we're just so blessed here, we're so blessed by the fact that you are with us and you won't leave us nor forsake us. We're so blessed, Lord, that, that we have the freedoms we have to just um, congregate together and to worship you corporately. So, Father, I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit. I pray for the gift of teaching. I pray that I would decrease and you increase and be glorified. And I pray that people on this campus tonight, when they leave this place, but never your presence, but when they leave, Lord, that they would leave better than when they came. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So we are in Samuel or 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll be reviewing uh, verses 1 through 15. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. And as always, we do have a title for the message, and the title is Don't Panic. Don't Panic. And so I'm going to define the word panic in its verb form. And panic means to be overcome by a sudden fear. Another source says to be overcome with extreme fear, to be overcome by a sudden fear or to be overcome with extreme fear. Now, there's many athletes and and many people are sports fans and like your various sports and so forth. But when you look at these different sports, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, you'll notice that many athletes' careers are defined by how they react in the big moments. And so the question is asked when people evaluate these athletes. And one question could be, are they cool under pressure? And do these people, these athletes, do they look forward to the big moments, do they step up when the pressure is on? When it's a little hot, do they step up? Or do they defer to others when the pressure is on them? And to use our word tonight, do they panic under pressure? And many of you notice that the best and the most memorable athletes, they usually do not crack or panic under pressure. And so people, they respect these athletes like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or Tom Brady, Joe Montana, or even the boxer. And there have been many boxers who have gotten knocked down, but they didn't panic. They got right back up and They made it out of that round because instead of exchanging punches because they're woozy, they they, they grab on, they hold their opponent's arms, and 
And they just kind of dance around and move around as best as they can until they can get back to their seats and recollect themselves. And so that you have those boxers who don't crack under that pressure just because they got knocked down. And some of them even come back to win the boxing match. And so we see it in life. We see it in this world today that there's many athletes' careers that are defined by how they react to pressure. Do they panic or are they cool under pressure? But outside of the athletic world, there are people in various professions who do not crack or panic under pressure. And probably some of you are in here. Maybe you had an interview recently because I know there are some people who get interviewed and they just don't crack under pressure. They don't panic during the interview. And thank God there are some doctors, since we're speaking about professions, who don't panic when it's crunch time, when it's a high-pressure moment, or just because of a client's challenging health issue. Thank God there's some doctors and nurses and other medical staff who do not panic. Thank the Lord there are some teachers who don't panic under pressure. Well, I used to be a school teacher in the public school system, and I've seen some teachers panic. And I'll tell you, those students, they will sniff it out. Those students will sniff out when the teacher is not organized. They'll sniff it out when the teacher is afraid. They, they sniff it out when the teacher is panicking. We've seen teachers panic because they had over 30-something students in their classroom, and, and their roster is just crazy, and they don't have enough seats in their classrooms. I've seen situations like that. And so, but there are also some experienced teachers that I've had a chance to, to observe, and they just did not panic or crack under the pressure. And the question tonight is, what about you? What about me and our high-pressure moments? Do we panic? Do we crack? Are we overcome with extreme fear? See, tonight as we read about this episode in King Saul's life, we're going to get a chance to evaluate where we are in our lives, in our walk with the Lord. And then, of course, we're going to learn how we can do better in those quote-unquote big moments in life. And so I want you to Take a look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. And there it says that Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains or the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah. Of Benjamin, and Benjamin is just a territory in Israel, a territory belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. And it says, as we continue in verse 2, that the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan, verse 3, attacked the garrison or the military post of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and then Saul blew the trumpet. In other words, he blew the ram's horn, or in Hebrew, it's called a shofar. 
And he blew it throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. And that Israel had also become an abomination or repulsive to the Philistines. And the people or the troops were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now, depending on what English Bible version you're reading, you'll notice that verse 1 is interpreted in various ways. For example, one version states that Saul was 30 years old when he became a king and he was king over Israel 42 years. And the reason why some translations are worded that way in English is because this is how the verse is worded in some early Greek copies. But remember, the Old Testament was mostly written in Hebrew with some parts in Aramaic. And you'll see some Aramaic in the book of Daniel, for example. But then you have the Old Testament translation, which is called the Septuagint. And so, for example, in some those early Greek copies, like I said, that verse one does not read like it does here in the New King James Version. And so it depends on what set of manuscripts uh, those who are, um, I guess, switching over the languages. It, It depends on what manuscripts they're using. Are they using the Hebrew or are they using the Greek copies? But I'll tell you this, that the Hebrew is not clear in this verse. But one source says, but probably speaking of verse one, it probably it only means according to the Hebrew idiom or saying that during the first year, nothing remarkable occurred. But after two years or in the second year of his reign, it's just saying that the subsequent events took place. And so I just spent a little time going over what many of you may see in the footnotes of your Bible or in the margin of your Bible. So you can research that on your own time. But I just did a quick overview of that in regard to verse one. But one thing I want to point out in in the first four verses is that Jonathan attacked a Philistine military post in Geba. And remember, he is the son of King Saul. And what I like is the fact that Jonathan did not wait for the Philistines to attack him and his fellow Israelites. Instead, Jonathan went on the offensive. And there's a lesson there for us because many of us as Christians, we, we spend most of our lives, most of our Christian walk reacting to or or playing defense while the enemy slaps us around or while the enemy attacks us or brings these schemes against us. Many of us are on defense, but we need to be more offensive. We need to be, in other words, more proactive. We need to be putting on, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament, the whole armor of God, not some of it, but the entire armor of God. 
Speaking of the belt of truth, speaking of the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And it also talks about the shield of faith and as well as the sword of the spirit, speaking of the word of God, which we can pick up and use in certain moments, just like Jesus did when he was tempted by the enemy. See, Jesus used the sword of the spirit, the word of God to fight back against the enemy. And and if we're going to be able to to use certain verses, applicable verses to a certain situation, that means we're going to need to be in the word of God. We need to be proactive. We need to be proactive in, in praying, proactive in meditating on the word, as well as reading it, as well as studying the word of God. See, there's a difference between reading the word of God and studying the word of God. You know, most of the time as we do our daily devotions, most of us are reading, hopefully slowly and carefully, and hopefully we're chewing on or meditating upon the word of God. But usually our devotional time, our quiet time with the Lord as we're reading, usually that goes a little faster than a study. And so I would suggest that not only would you have a personal devotional time where you're reading slowly and carefully and perhaps jotting down notes here and there and highlighting here and there, but I would also encourage you that you would pray about a study that you can do on the side. So so, so maybe something that the Lord puts on your heart is to study his attributes. And so you have your personal reading time. You're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but then on a side, you have a personal study that that's a a longer study a more detailed study and like I said in that example maybe it's about the attributes of God and so there you are being on the offensive you're being proactive in case the enemy tries to plant a thought in your head that is not biblical you can bring up a scripture and say no I will not accept that thought I'm not going to allow that thought to camp out in my head no Satan I am not going to adopt your suggestions and run with it because I've been studying the word of God I've been reading the word of God and and this is what the word of God says And also we can be offensive or proactive by going into the enemy's territory and or the enemy's den, for example, as we go out witnessing and some of the saints here, praise God, has been going out into those tough neighborhoods and sharing the gospel with those who are in darkness, with those who are lost, with those who are under uh, the captivity or in captivity to the enemy. And so some saints here and many of you have gone into the enemy's den and tough neighborhoods and you can just throw out some names of tough neighborhoods and I could throw out some but I would just bore you with that and and I remember one year I had the privilege we had a because we had a brother who used to come here and he used to show us how to witness to to Muslims and so he would come and we would do the training and then we had the privilege of going out to an Arab festival where a lot of Muslims would be and we set up our tents and and we were right there in the enemy territory. And, we were, and they were passing out tracts and things like that. And, and so we had, and some people did receive the Lord, praise God. Some people just walking through the park. They, some of them weren't even Muslim, just walking through the park where they were having their festival. And some people were receiving the Lord. But we were, we were being proactive. That's just one example. And many of you can bring up some examples and And so I would encourage you tonight to be a Jonathan, 
Be proactive. Don't always be on a defensive. You get slapped around by the enemy and now you got to backtrack and, and do all this catching up when we're already behind. In verse 5 it says, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore and multitude. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And now here's, here's another translation situation. Because some Greek copies read 3,000 instead of 30,000, but the Hebrew copies say 30,000. So there's no salvation issue. It doesn't change anything about God or about any doctrine. And so I just want to throw that out because, again, you're going to see that in your margins as well. But I'm going to go with the 30,000 chariots because I'm reading from the New King James Version. And the Lord is not going to send me to hell if I'm, say, 3,000 or 30. So I'll just go with the 30,000. Verse 6, it says, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger for the people or troops were distressed, it says, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, they hid in rocks or cliffs, they hid in holes, which could also be cellars or tombs. They hid in pits, which could be also dry cisterns. And some of them, or some of the Hebrews in verse 7, even crossed over the Jordan, that is to the east side, to the land of Gad and Gilead. Because remember, before, before the Israelites crossed over the Jordan into the promised land of Canaan, remember, there were some tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan River. So half the tribe of Manasseh and Gad, for example, settled on that side. And so some of these Hebrews who were afraid, they they crossed over to the east side. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him and and they were trembling. And so these Israelites, they were terrified. They, They were overcome with fear so much that they hid where they could. And then the people who followed Saul, who remained with him, they were trembling. Or in other words, they were gripped with fear. They were shaking with fear. And how about us tonight? Have we ever been gripped by fear? I can only answer for myself and say yes. But, but you can answer that within your own minds. You don't have to raise your hands. But have you ever been gripped by fear? And maybe like these Israelites, maybe you're hiding right now because of this, because you're gripped by fear. Maybe some of you are doing that literally, but many people are doing that figuratively as you hide your affiliation with Christ. Oh, you got so many people in the office who are are, are not worshipers of, of Jesus, and they will let you know that, that they don't believe in your God, that they don't see your Bible as the Word of God. And there are many people in your workplace or maybe in your classroom or school that will tell you that. And maybe you're in hiding, you're gripped by fear, and you're hiding your affiliation with Christ. Or maybe like some of these other Hebrews, you've crossed over the Jordan, so to speak. In other words, you you literally ran away and you're getting as far away from the issue as possible. Or maybe like these other Israelites or Hebrews, you're, you're, you're out of hiding. You're walking around, but you're shaking with fear. And so you have people in the world who don't know Jesus. 
You have people in the world who don't have a relationship with the God that we have a relationship with through faith in Christ. But yet some of us are walking around trembling like some of these Hebrews were. Gripped by fear. You see, a person who is overcome with fear is, number one, not focused on God. Not focused on God. And also a person who's overcome with fear is, of course, not demonstrating faith in that moment. In fact, the person who's overcome with fear is acknowledging that the problem is bigger than the God they serve. Let me say that one more time. A person who is overcome with fear, what they're really saying is that the problem, the issue is bigger than the God they serve. And we know that's not true, but that's the message we send off when we're overcome by fear. See, because God did not give us the spirit of fear. You see, the Israelites, and not just them, but us, we should have the mindset of what's in the following verses. For example, in Psalm 118, verse 6, this is the mindset they should have had, and this is the mindset that we need to have today. Again, Psalm 118, verse 6, it says, the Lord is on my side. You see, we need to remember that. And he says, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, Darrell, right there, I can just list a whole bunch of things that man can do to me. But hold on, time out. Jesus says something. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. So yes, if you want to give an answer to Psalm 118, verse 6, Jesus answers it for us that, that obviously they can kill the body. But do not be afraid of them. Because after that, they cannot do anything else to us. But in verse 5 of Luke 12, it says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast in hell, into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You see that word behind hell, that Greek word behind hell there is Gehenna. And it speaks of that lake of fire that you read about in Revelation chapter 20. So yes, Jesus talked about hell. Yes, Jesus talked about Gehenna. He talked about the lake of fire. It's real. You see, God doesn't just pick and choose. I'm going to send that person to hell, send that person to hell. No, a person decides for themselves to go to hell. When they say no to Jesus, they're saying yes to hell. It's their decision and God honors their choice. But, but, but Pastor Durrell, that's not loving. That, that God would honor their choice and, and send them to hell. Well, I have to ask you a question. Is it loving for God to force somebody to be with him in eternity when they never said yes to him? Is that loving that he would force someone to be with him when they said no? You see, people say no when they give Jesus the stiff arm. They say no. When they don't make a decision for Jesus. But, but, but I didn't say yes or no. I'm just sitting on the fence. That's a no. Either you're in or you're out. Either you repent and put your faith in Christ or you don't. 
And so a person makes up in their own mind pretty much to go to hell. I've even had people, Pastor Tony and I, when we were younger, I remember we went out street witnessing and we saw some young men and, and we asked these young men, we, you know, we said, do you know where you're going if you were to die today? And the person said, hell, and was happy about it. Would God force somebody like that to be with them in heaven? They made their own decision. And like I said, he, the young man was happy about it. And in verses 8 and 9, it says, Then he waited seven days, speaking of Saul, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. They, they deserted him. And so Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and, and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offerings. And, and so what... Or when was this time set by Samuel that is being referred to here in verse 8? Well, if you were to flip back or you can even write this verse down in in 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 8, this is where you find that information. Because Samuel, remember the, the priest, prophet, and judge, he tells Saul, the first king of Israel... That, that you shall go down before me to Gilgal and, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. And he says, seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And so that's where this ties in. You know, so as you read verse 8, that's your reference. Again, 1 Samuel 10 verse 8. He told him that I will come down and I'm going to offer the burnt offerings. I'm going to make the sacrifices of peace offerings. Samuel is saying, told him to wait seven days. And then he says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to show you what you should do, Saul. You see, the meeting had been planned for about two years prior to this event. And now it happened In verse 10, that as soon as he had finished presenting the birth offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet Samuel that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people, when I saw that the soldiers were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed. And when I saw that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord, or I have not asked for the Lord's help or favor. And therefore, Saul says, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. It could also be translated that that I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And so in Saul's explanation to Samuel as to why he offered these this burnt offerings, notice that he put some of the blame on Samuel. In other words, he's saying that Samuel didn't come when he said he would. Samuel, you took too long to arrive. And it's the same thing our, our first parents did in the garden. Oh, they had other people to blame. They blamed someone else. See, Adam blamed the woman Eve, and he actually indirectly blamed God 
for him disobeying, for him uh, eating the, the fruit from the, um, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He even blamed God indirectly because he said, God, the woman that you gave me, gave me this fruit. And so not only did he blame Eve, but indirectly God. And then God turned to Eve for her disobedience, questioned her. And then Eve, of course, blamed the serpent. And so people are still doing this today, blaming others, just like Samuel did as he put some blame there on Samuel for not coming on time. And yes, like I said, we do this. And, and what we should be doing is accepting the responsibility for our own actions. Not just accepting that responsibility that, yes, I did it, I messed up. And then repenting of it. You know, some people blame their parents. Well, if it weren't for my dad, if it weren't for my mom, then I wouldn't be this way. Worrying for my spouse, I wouldn't be this way. I wouldn't have done that. Oh, if, if somebody would have listened to me in this marriage, I would not have to go to someone else and exchange emails with someone else outside of my marriage. But it's my mate's fault. Oh, it's my dad's fault. Oh, my dad was an alcoholic. It's, it's his fault that I'm an alcoholic. Did your dad put that beer, that alcohol to your lips, even though he's been passed away in some examples for years? Is he still doing that? Are you, retaking, or are you taking responsibility for your own actions and repenting for it? And some of us even blame the devil for stuff he's not even doing. The devil made me do it. The devil was like, hey, I didn't do it this time. That was me the other day, but not today. But we blame the devil for stuff. Some of the stuff he's not even doing. That's all you, buddy. And Samuel said to Saul in verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you for. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. It's not going to endure. The Lord has sought or looked for himself a man. And we know that to be David, as we continue in our lessons, a man after his what? His own heart. So guess what? This is a man who's going to be loyal to him. A a man who has a desire to follow God's will. And the Lord has commanded him. To be commander or leader over his people because you saw you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, only the priests could legitimately offer sacrifices. You know, Saul was the king. He could not do that. That wasn't his job. It was foolish for him to do that. And so Samuel was right when he said to King Saul, you have done foolishly. Samuel told him the truth essentially about his actions. Samuel told him the truth about the results of his actions as well. And as believers, as Christians, as people who put our faith in Christ, we must be willing to tell people the truth about sin and the results of sin. We need to be able to tell people the truth that that. 
lying is a sin, that this or that is a sin, and there are many listed in the Bible. We need to be able to point that out, tell the truth about it, and talk about the results of those sins. We need to be honest about sharing that with people. But of course, we, we, we do it with grace. Of course, we speak the truth in love. And one thing I like is what it says in Proverbs. And this is Proverbs 27, verse 5. As we talk about this, as we talk about speaking the truth to people when it concerns sin and the results of it, it says that open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And so to rebuke someone openly, to to tell somebody about their folly and something they did wrong uh, openly, that's better than loving them secretly or in a concealed way. Because if you love somebody in a concealed way or if it's hidden love, they're not benefiting from it. But at least they're going to benefit from the fact that you're rebuking them openly for some sin in their lives, some open sin in their lives. But check this out. Not, not, only, um, not only should we be in a position to be loving enough and, and bold enough and open enough to, to speak the truth in love when it concerns sin and, and its results in another brother or sister's life, but, but watch this. We also must be humble listeners when other Christians tell us the truth about our sin. Oh, because we all have blind spots. And if, and, and if you think you're perfect and you don't have blind spots, I would say this, get married. And your spouse will let you know. If you want to know how much you have grown and how much you're growing, ask your spouse. Praise God for us. For, thank God for my wife. I'm not going to look over there. I don't want to get beat up afterwards. But verse 15. I'll just blink when I'm in danger, but no, I'm just joking. But verse 15, then, then Samuel arose and, and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and, and Saul numbered the people or the troops present with him. There were about 600 fighting men. And guess what? We have a third alternate reading of a verse, all in the first 15 verses of, of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Because in a New Living Translation, for example, it says, Then Samuel, or Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And when Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 were left. And it's not just the New Living Translation, but there's some other English versions like the ESV, for example, that that reads sort of the same way. And so it has the longer version. So again, like the NLT, the ESV, and some others. So, so Pastor Darrell, where they're getting this information, again, they're, um, they're translating from the Septuagint or the Greek version of this verse. And so the Greek version of verse 15 is a little longer than the Hebrew version because the Hebrew version is short like it is in the New King James Version. And so again, New King James Version, it says, just then Samuel arose and went up, from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and it ends there, and then it goes to the next sentence, and it talks about those 600 men. But again, those English um, 
translations that, that go with the Greek or they, or they translate from the Greek, the Septuagint, it's a little longer. And so to help you to remember, the Hebrew version of verse 15 is shorter. The Greek version or Septuagint uh, a version of verse 15 is a little longer. And so if you have a different Bible version than New King James Version, and you're saying, hold up, Darrell, you're missing some parts. I just explained to you why. And so, again, it's not a salvation issue, not a, not a doctrinal issue. It's just, um, you know, translator, translation situation there where the, the translator made a decision, okay, what text to go with, the Greek or the Hebrew, when it comes to verse 15. And so you may find that information in your margins as well. And again, I just wanted to give you the Cliff Notes version of what you might see in your margin. And so, you know, you could take that with you. You could study that some more. The Word of God is true. It is interesting. I mean, the, the Word we have is intact. The message comes through 100% from the original copies. We have plenty of manuscripts to prove it. And so you don't have anything to worry about when it comes to the Word of God. And speaking of the word of God in, in regard especially to, to, to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13 verses 1 through 15, notice this, that we learn a lesson from Saul about the actions that follow panic. We learn from Saul about the actions that follow panic. Well, one thing that happens when Panic sets in when we have that sudden overpowering feeling of fear is that we'll make, number one, some rash decisions. And Saul, of course, he made a rash or quick decision. But also notice this about the actions that follow panic. Is that it causes people to operate outside of our roles. Because Saul, in this example, in, in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, noticed that he operated outside of his role as king. And, and he took upon himself the role of a priest and was rebuked by Samuel. And, and that happens oftentimes with many of us when we allow this sudden, overpowering feeling of fear to come in. When we allow panic to set in, we operate outside of our roles. And the thing is, is that there, there are a couple of results that stand out to me personally due to people doing things outside or in a state of panic. And so when people panic and they act out of that, there are a couple of results that stand out. And we see this in the life of Paul or in this episode of not Paul, but Saul. And one thing that happened with Saul is that his heart was revealed. The core of his being was revealed in this lesson. As we take a look at those, at those actions he did outside of panic or in a state of panic, his heart is revealed. He was revealed as a man who caves in the pressure. He was revealed as a man who will disobey when things don't go his way. He, he was revealed as a man who was not patient, uh, a man who was not a man after God's own heart to the point where God had to seek or look for a man after his own heart. And that man, of course, is David, but it was revealed about Saul that he is not that man. And again, it's revealed through his actions as a result of, 
of panic, his heart was revealed. And, and I would say this, that we will learn a lot about other people outside of Saul if they were to perform an action in a state of panic as well. And, and, and we learn a lot about people, including ourselves. We, we learn how far we need to grow, how far we have grown. We learn how weak we are. We learn that we need to spend more time in the Word. And so we learn a lot about people and, and about ourselves when we act in a state of panic. Our hearts are revealed, but also what happens when we perform actions in a state of panic or being overcome by fear is that we end up missing out on God's best, just like King Saul did. Because King Saul, he could have had a dynasty. In other words, his descendants could have continued to rule after him, like it ended up happening for King David. But Saul lost that dynasty, even though he continued to reign as king. But of course, his replacement, David, was going to eventually take over. And so Saul missed out on God's best for him, all because of his actions due to being in a state of panic. You see, some of us may, may miss out on what God has for us, on the best that God has for us, because God may want to grow us through a situation. He, he may want to use us as a positive example. He may want to reveal his power in a personal way in our lives, through our lives, or in our situations. But when we act out in, in, in a state of panic, what happens is we mess things up. We, we throw things off, and we don't experience things that God wants us to experience. We don't experience his best. See, maybe God wants to give us a praise report to share with somebody, somebody who needs to hear it. And, and maybe he wants to, to, to do something in our lives and in our situation that we can remember. And it can be used by God to build our faith. But we miss out on God's best when we act out in a state of panic. Oh, Darrell, you, you keep presenting these problems. You keep presenting these issues, Pastor Darrell. But is there an alternative to allowing panic to dictate our actions? The answer to that is yes. And the first point I want to share with you is to not base our actions on our feelings. And so you want to base your actions on the truth. You, you want to, in other words... Base your actions on the facts. So what are the facts about the situation? What are the facts or the truth about God? That's why it's so important that we understand who the God is that we serve. What are his attributes? What, what are the things that he does? What are the things that he has done? What are the things that he is able to do? Oh, he is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He is an almighty God. And there is no other God like him. And he could be present everywhere at the the same time and he is a very present help in our time of need that is the type of God that we serve a God who knows everything about us he knows our rising up he knows when we sit down he knows our thoughts from afar off because that's the type of God that we serve and so we need to ask ourselves what are the facts what are the facts about our God what are the facts about the situation what are the facts about our relationship with God because if we understood that then we would understand that he is a good, good father, like the, like the song says, but, but also he'll never leave us and neither will he forsake us. 
If we only understood the facts and acted out of the facts or, or, or based our actions based on the truth, not on our feelings, but, but also another alternative to panicking or allowing panic to dictate our actions is to remember our role. Unlike King Saul, oh, he didn't remember his role. Just remember. And then number three, remember the instructions. You see, Samuel gave him some instructions. He says, wait till I come to you. I will show you what you should do. In fact, I'm going to offer these sacrifices. We need to remember the instructions. Or all of those underlined verses in your Bible, all of those highlighted verses in your Bible, all of those notes that you take during various Bible studies, whether it's a home group or women's studies, men's studies, young adult study, all of those verses. Do you remember the instructions that you received in those sermon notes that you highlighted? You filled your page up but never revisit them. Remember the instructions, unlike Saul. But another alternative to allowing panic to dictate our actions is to stay in our lane. Pastor Durrell, what do you mean by that? That means just don't remember your role, but do your role and only your role that God has given to you. And speaking of staying in your lane, I just... I don't want to use the word hate, but I really don't like it when I'm on a road trip and these big rig trucks just cut in front of me. They're trying to pass another truck in front of them and they just cut right over and they did it. And it was so bad one time on our last trip that I that I was almost one of those people who called the number on the back of the truck. Like, hey, this driver is not doing a good job. I told my wife, I said, I feel like calling this number. He just cut me off. And so the, what happened was when, when that happens, and not just with the big rig trucks, or when somebody doesn't stay in their lane and they just jump ahead of someone else, or when you have somebody who should be in the slow lane, on, in the right lane, far right lane, getting over in the fast lane, what happens is you get a clog in the lane. And I believe that's what happens when we get out of our lane, when we step outside of our role, we, we, start, we begin to clog things up a bit. That, that, that's not your role, and you're going to do it anyway, and now you're just setting everything back. So we want to stay in our lane, whether it's in life or in ministry. And so this would include not just remembering the instructions, but this would include following, doing the instructions. But then there is a fifth alternative in our last point here. And that is to wait for God's plan to unfold. Saul didn't do that. He didn't wait for God's plan to unfold. He didn't wait for Samuel, the priest, to get there and offer those sacrifices. He didn't wait for Samuel, the priest, the the prophet, the judge. He didn't wait for him to give him instructions on what to do next. But he was impatient. He cracked under pressure, so to speak. And so I would encourage you as an alternative to acting in a state of panic or allowing panic to dictate your actions instead of that is to wait for his plan to unfold. Oh, I know you just like Saul. I know you see the enemy gathering. 
I know you see people deserting you and and I know you're waiting for people to show up and they never come and I know that there's certain things in your mind that's supposed to work out a certain way but they're not working out that way or I know that many of you are in that state of mind or in that situation but I would encourage you to wait for God's plan to unfold because if you wait I promise you you will not regret it if you wait on God you will not regret it Because things are going to work out better than we could ever imagine if we would just wait on God's plan to unfold. And so tonight, what has you in a panic? What has you overcoming fear tonight? What what is that thing that that you're tempted to uh, allow to overcome you? And, And then you begin to act outside of that panic or in a state of that panic. What is that that has gripped your hearts tonight? Well, I just want to leave you with the word of God as the worship team comes up. And and as I leave you with the word of God, with the scripture, I won't even expound on it. I promise. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait. I say on the Lord. Father, we thank you for for your word. We we thank you that you are trustworthy. Help us, Lord, to wait and to not act out in in a state of panic when the situation begins to get hot, when the temperature of our circumstance gets turned up. Help us to not panic. So, Lord, I pray that you would increase our our trust. I pray that you remove from us what you don't want to be in us. And that you help us, Lord, to be that example for our children, for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, for our neighbors, for other believers and And even unbelievers, help us to be that godly example that when the temperature is turned up, Lord, that we stay cool under pressure and not panic. And Lord, I understand that this is a supernatural endeavor. And so I ask, Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, that you would empower us with your spirit to do whatever it is you called us to do. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.